Australia's aid program to Papua New Guinea is its biggest, its highest profile and most controversial. In this insightful keynote panel at the 2020 Australasian Aid Conference, Jonathan Pryke outlines the findings of his research into Australia's aid program to PNG. His Excellency John Carley discusses key changes in the way Australian assistance is being delivered. Terence Wood presents the findings of the third Australian aid transparency audit. And Stephanie Copas-Campbell reflects on the panel's perspectives on delivering development outcomes in PNG. The Australasian Aid Conference is hosted by the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University in partnership with the Asia Foundation. Good afternoon, everyone. This is the official last session of uh, what's been an excellent two plus one day conference. I am not Stephen House, so if you were reading an old version of the agenda, uh, I'm Anthea Mulakala. I'm one of the co-hosts from the Asia Foundation of the conference, and I'm a, a bit of a, a last-minute substitute into this panel, but I, I'm really delighted to be hosting. The good thing is that I won't have a lot to say on the upfront, so there will be um, uh, a lot more time for the speakers. Um, it's very appropriate that we're talking about PNG as uh, Australia's largest partner in development assistance. It's also significant that this morning it was very clear from the minister's address that the Pacific is uh, number one priority. Uh, PNG probably tops the list there as well. So we're really excited to have a vibrant panel with lots of data, um, very well-informed and experienced views of the Pacific and PNG in particular to hear today. So we've got a great panel. Um, Jonathan Pryke, who most of you will know, who's the director of the Pacific Islands Program at Lowy Institute. We've had great um, presentations from Lowy throughout the conference. Really delighted to have High Commissioner from Papua New Guinea, uh, Mr. John Kali, who will be providing some comments after Jonathan's presentation. Then we'll be hearing from Terence Wood, who's a research fellow with the Development Policy Center. Is that correct, Terence? Yes. <laughs> and then lastly, we'll be hearing from Stephanie Copas Campbell, who uh, we also heard from last night, who is CEO from Oil Search Foundation. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging and celebrating the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past, present, and emerging. And now I'd like to turn it over to John. Thanks very much, Anthea. Uh, it's great to be here, and good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for sticking out it out to the end. Uh, but of course, we're saving the best for last, so um, I'm sure Terence and I and Steph and John are going to make it well worth your while. Let me also provide my acknowledgement of country and pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past, present, and emerging. Uh, before I jump in, a little bit about the Institute. We are Australia's leading foreign policy think tank. We are a non-aligned and independent research organisation tasked with informing the public about what's happening in the world around them and helping to improve foreign policy. Uh, I've been with the Institute for five years, uh, managing our work on the Pacific for the last four. Before that, I worked here at the Development Policy Centre, working for Stephen on aid in the Pacific. And Stephen, I watched you shushing Lant Pritchett yesterday for going over time. Uh, and you know, whilst I found it very funny, I don't want to be subjected to the same embarrassment today. So I will do my best to stay on time. But I also found out today that I have 15 minutes, not 20. So I'm going to be speaking very, very fast. Um, but anyway, I'm here today to talk to you about one of Australia's most important bilateral relationships, that of Papua New Guinea. Uh, Australia's relationship with PNG spans across the entire spectrum of interests, diplomacy, defence, development, investment, migration, people-to-people -people links, trade. Uh, it's a unique relationship and a very complicated one. 
One central element of Australia's engagement in Papua New Guinea is our aid program. Now, I'm fully conscious that the term aid is a dirty word in Papua New Guinea these days, considered parochial and antiquated and doing a poor job reflecting the nature of the investments Australia makes in PNG. But for the purposes of simplicity, I'm going to stick with it in this presentation. So why now? Well, I could start with the cliches that the context has changed, PNG is rapidly evolving, geopolitics has completely altered priorities and on and on. But the reality is there has never been a time in PNG's history when the context has not been rapidly changing. Instead, I think it is appropriate because of what is happening here in Australia. The government has announced a new development, a development review, the outcome of which we expect to be a new aid policy. Australia's five-year aid investment plan to Papua New Guinea has also expired. A new aid investment plan is waiting for the completion of negotiations around Australia and Papua New Guinea's new comprehensive strategic partnership agreement. The last government-sanctioned independent evaluation of, of the Papua New Guinea aid program was a, conducted a decade ago by Stephen Howes and Eric Kwa. The last internal review was done five years ago. We are also seeing a significant turnover of aid project cycles and senior personnel within the PNG mission this year, so the time is ripe for a refresh of ideas. Also, frankly, I've been working on PNG for quite a while now, uh, and everyone from DFAT to implementing partners to the PNG government complains about what the aid program isn't doing well or isn't doing at all, uh, but we hear far less talk about how we can make it better. So that's what I'm trying to have a go at with this presentation and with the report that will come off the back of it. Uh, I should also disclose that the Lowy Institute does receive funding from DFAT for a number of projects that we do in the Pacific. So I'm taking a risk doing this, uh, but I am doing it in good faith with no malice or ill will uh, to those people working very hard within DFAT and their implementing partners that make aid work in Papua New Guinea. So development challenges of PNG. Given the audience, I don't need to spend much time uh, dwelling on this. But on a wide range of social indicators, Papua New Guinea remains one of the world's most underdeveloped nations. On the screen are just a few examples. Uh, it is not an understatement to say that Papua New Guinea is one of the hardest countries in the world to do development at all, let alone do it well. Now, putting aid in PNG in context. These two graphs track aid's declining relevance in PNG since independence. Today, total aid to PNG is equivalent to 3% of PNG's GDP and roughly 9% of government expenditure. The key message here is that if you accept the premise that volumes of aid give you influence, which is itself a big assumption, then aid has never been less influential in PNG than it is today. This must shape the ambition of what we hope to achieve through our aid program. So let's take a look at aid and PNG today. The chart on the left shows the top donors to Papua New Guinea between the period of 2011 and 2017. The chart on the right shows the sectors uh, using the OECD classifications over the same period. What stands out for me here is the dominance of Australia in the aid space in Papua New Guinea. When looking at traditional donors, Australia gives more than 70% of all aid to PNG. That number drops to 59% with the inclusion of China. That's globally unique to have that dominance of one donor in a, in a particular developing country. So Australian aid and PNG today. I was going to talk through the process of how the PNG aid policy sausage is made in, uh, in DFAT, but I'm going to skip through all that because of time. Um, and anyway, suffice to say, Australia's aid program to PNG is our largest, uh, and by DFAT's own assessment, is our worst performing aid program. Uh, this is a reflection of the challenging context, the many competing priorities the aid program is dealing with, 
but also weakness in aid design, management and implementation. There is certainly room for improvement. So this is a sectoral breakdown of the current year's $607.5 million uh, program, according to DFAT's fact sheet for 2019-20. Now this uses DFAT's own sectoral reporting, not the OECD's, which lumps uh, law and justice and governance together. But it does give you an indication of where the priorities are. This is a list of Australia's current bilateral aid expenditure in PNG, according to its annual performance review document. This is for the year 2018-19. Those highlighted are the projects set to expire this year uh, in 2020. There's probably been progress on some of these with extensions and design work being done, but that's not publicly visible. So I pulled this from a document of the end of last year. Another point to note here is that the DFAT managed bilateral programs only up, add up to so all these projects only add up to about $340 million a year. So about 57% of the total aid spend in PNG in a given year. The rest of the, the pie is tied up in regional programs, such as the APTC, which does a lot of work in PNG, funding through multilateral agencies or NGOs, uh, and funding through other government agencies like the Australian Federal Police or other regional grants. So essentially, these investments only reflect the contracting stream of the Australian aid program in PNG. When you factor in all the rest of what's going on in PNG, Australia's active investments balloon from 18 listed here to 138 different programs, each with their own sets of constituents and advocates. So the two key messages here are that one, we're at a critical juncture of contract turnover in PNG, and two, that DFAT aid in its entirety, even when you, with the move to larger and larger contracts and facilities and programs, Aid is still incredibly complex in PNG. Uh, and before I move on here, I really want to emphasize how hard all of this stuff is. This is one of the hardest and highest cost environments in the world in which to operate. It's difficult to get good people to even go to PNG, let alone stay long enough to be effective. There are huge amounts of legacy issues, baggage, and competing priorities that have to be grappled with on a daily basis. There are no silver bullets for a country whose development challenges are so acute, so rapidly changing, and are so interconnected. I have extraordinary sympathy for those in DFAT and their implementing partners trying to make this all work. There are no easy answers to how to make the A program better. And a lot of it is actually already doing, uh, working and doing a good job, but it can be improved. So how have I come up with this list of recommendations? Well, I'll let you read through that methodology. But I want to emphasize that this is still a work in progress. The final product will be a high-level policy brief uh, that will still need to go through our internal editorial processes and external peer review. So recommendations could change and expand or shrink, uh, and I really welcome your feedback. So I have 14 recommendations uh, for the aid program, and I've structured them around four broad sectors, um, and they are what's on the screen, aid objectives, aid projects, aid partners, and aid management. So let's go through each of these in turn. First, let's take a look at aid objectives. Before we even set our object objectives, I think there are two guiding principles to how we should think about aid in Papua New Guinea. The first is expectation management. Remember that slide at the beginning about relevance and about the scale of aid compared to GDP and government expenditure. We can't expect every investment to be a catalyst for transformational change. We are only, we are only going to be changing PNG's development trajectory at the margins, and if we're lucky, we might do more. Transformational change should remain an aspiration for everything that we do, but not a goal or benchmark. We should instead look at the government capacity of PNG in a fixed state 
look at what our budget is, then look at the problems, then decide what we can achieve within those constraints, not the other way around, by looking at problems first. The second is focusing on what works. If a program works, such as the Transport Sector Support Program or the Incentive Fund, both of which have been running for 10 years and have succeeded in large part because of their longevity, don't mess with it. We want to be flexible and innovative and adaptive, uh, but in a country like PNG, where so much we try doesn't work, and where we invest such a large amount of money, we cannot do this by sacrificing programs that demonstrate impact. And finally, clarity of intent. We do a very bad job articulating what we are trying to achieve over the medium and long term. And that might be because we're trying to achieve too much. So just look at the DFAT website. These are all of the priorities you can find on the DFAT website when talking about Papua New Guinea. There are 34 priorities identified, uh, actually I think it's 39 priorities identified in the DFAT website, and you could nearly spend the entire aid program on any one of these. The growing emphasis on flexible and adaptive programs does not help. Flexibility and long-term consistency and predictability are borderline mutually exclusive principles. While the theory of for flexibility may be sound, and we heard a lot about that yesterday, um, while, flex while the theory may be sound, what you often end up with in practice is one, greater discretion to structure investments in a way that will help you, the donor, today, not PNG tomorrow, and two, uh, that en enables you to not lock yourself into investment decisions that then you'll then be held accountable for later. Now, of course, intent has to be determined by both governments, but some big picture targets like electrification, a commitment we've already made to PNG, might help. The aid investment plan should fit within 20 to 30 year strategic objectives, not five year objectives or objectives to be achieved within a posting period. So, aid projects. Let's start with the size of activities. In 2017, uh, five projects accounted for 43% of all aid expenditure in PNG. Ten projects accounted for 63%. These projects are now too big to fail. Designed on the theory of cost saving and reducing management burden, they have in fact severely reduced the number of contracting partners DFAT can now draw on. And even their own evaluation suggests that they have not exhibited the efficiencies that they were, they were designed to, to deliver. Now, there is fault here on all sides. DFAT designed these mega-projects with utopian-level complexity and then, can, and then can never leave them alone to be implemented. Contractors overcommitted in what they could deliver and in what time frame in order to win the contract. And then implementation was always slower than expectations. So size of activities should be reconsidered. Now, mirrored to that, complexity of activities. These large activities are so complex that even the people managing them don't know what they're supposed to be achieving. If that's the case, then the PNG government has no hope. Uh, this is a very disempowering position for our partners in the PNG government. Does the current draft of uh, health design, which is actually available on the DFAT website, miraculously, um, does that design have to be 165 pages long? Uh, or is it because the delegate either had no time to properly engage with it or wants to mitigate risk by putting everything possible in there? Um, yeah, aid design and reporting must be written in a way and that time-poor non-experts, ministers, bureaucrat generalists, external stakeholders can understand. And while we're here on design, uh, this is a rec recommendation that goes well beyond Papua New Guinea, but project design should be re-centralised in Canberra in close consultation with Post and not the other way around, in Post in close consultation with Canberra. A senior manager at Post should not be responsible for their relationships with government, 
for managing very complex aid programs, and then for designing what comes next. Now, I know DFATs are all high achievers, but there is just no way that you can do all of that. That's why we see so many projects be extended or rolled over. Um, there should be a dedicated and specialized team focusing on aid design across the entire aid program. That way, individual country programs can be better aligned with overall aid program objectives, and posts can be freed to focus on what's really important, relationships and aid management. Okay, breadth of activities. We hear over and over and over again that Australia needs to focus, needs to focus, and needs to focus. But how can you focus when you're such a dominant donor in all of your priority sectors? Well, if you can't condense your sectoral focus, perhaps instead you should prioritise within sectors. I'm going to steal one of Stephen's examples from a submission he made to a parliamentary review on PNG back in 2016, I think it was. If you look at the last, uh, if you look at the four-year, $90 million Law and Justice Program, or Justice Services and Stability for Development Program in PNG, there are five areas of focus with a total of 36 program elements. If you remove the 15% overhead, the 10% M&E component of the, of the project, and the 30% infrastructure requirement, you're left with a total of around 330,000 per year per program element. And we wonder why we don't see impact. But at the sectoral level, we absolutely should have a priority sector. The PNG government has asked us to make that 50% of our aid to be focused on infrastructure. That's part of their new donor development plan. Well, fair enough. Let's prioritise it. Electrification might be a good start. Two minutes, got it. Okay, on aid partners. Let's start with contractors, everyone's favourite punching bag. Contractors must be given very specific tasks and they're not micromanaged. If you can't avoid micromanagement because you frankly don't trust them, well, then uh, even further emphasis should be placed on simplification and size of, of activities. Each contract must have a clearly delineated single point of contact and post, and they should never have the responsibility of managing relationships with the PNG government or other constituents. That should be the sole responsibility of DFAT. Overall, I am agnostic on delivery modality, but I do know that contractors are relied upon far more heavily in Papua New Guinea than anywhere else in the Australian aid portfolio. On grants, uh, where possible, where organisations are trusted, such as NGOs, academia, churches, all organisations have been working in PNG a long time and been partners to, with DFAT for a long time. Well, the, uh, these grants should be administered directly by DFAT, not through contractor facilities. Grant programs should be expended over much, expanded over much longer time horizons, particularly with programs that are forging institutional links between our two countries, such as the ANU-UPNG partnership that Stephen helps manage. Advisors, okay. Advisors are a major part of the aid program in PNG. Rough estimates put them at around 50% of Australia's aid spend in PNG. The average advisor costs around $500,000 when you factor in travel, security, overhead, accommodation, etc. cetera. Uh, and you know, frankly, they're underpaid. You know, the advisor remuneration framework of 2013 results in the best people you can get are around the EL2 equivalent band uh, at, D at DFAT. I'd rather have a third less advisors who are legitimate experts than the very limited pool we can now draw on today. Per I also think it's absurd, it's absurd also to think that a foreign advisor can build sustainable capacity in a sub three year period. All advisors should be transitioned to inline positions instead of being advisors as soon as possible. But this is a recommendation that people have been making for more than a decade, uh, including our high commissioner here. Um, yeah, finally on aid management. 
Uh, M&E, I'm not going to touch too much on. I think M&E, the, the, the structures are right, the processes are right, but the data collection is terrible. Uh, so uh, maintain the M&E robustness and frameworks, but emphasize data collection to establish baselines to perform against. I'm getting to stop, but I've got a page left, so I'm going to finish it off. Aid accountability. Accountability is too diverse and disparate among Post and Canberra. Post needs a single point of responsibility for the aid program, and it cannot be the High Commissioner, whose singular job should be to maintain the relationship and prosecute Australia's national interest. The Deputy High Commissioner, perhaps, would be a good starting point there. Aid transparency. It is literally impossible to find out in the public domain whether $600 million in aid we give this year, uh, and into what projects. DFAT should automate all of its online public reporting mechanisms through AidWorks. Most donors do this these days. It's not hard. We have the technological capabilities. In, in, honestly, in 2020, having a web... I mean, I'm stealing a bit of Terence's thunder here. In 2020, having a website, the state of DFATS, is really, frankly, embarrassing. You know, Minister was talking about how world standard we are. <laughs> Our website ain't. Uh, finally, managing relationships. Everyone says relationships are key, particularly in countries as vulnerable as Papua New Guinea. But no one has reconciled how you maintain relationships with very high turnover in contractors and within DFAT itself. Uh, so one solution might be heavy investments in face-to-face -face handovers. That might be a good start. So instead of your bureaucrats leaving and then running out their holiday period before their replacement starts, maybe they should, the replacement should come before they leave. I don't know, just an idea. Um, Okay, prioritising. Um, you know, everyone needs to prioritise. So that's my list of recommendations. But what should be prioritised? Well, here's my top four. Uh, once again, I hope my recommendations are taken in good faith, and I look forward to hearing your feedback. Thank you. have to apologize for rushing you. You did an amazing job, and we could really hear the frustration uh, and urgency in your voice. So there was some benefit to the rush. Um, High Commissioner, uh, that's a, there's a lot there to comment on. This is your reality. Uh, we welcome you to make some comments. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a PowerPoint presentation to make, because I'm going to speak from the heart. Uh, Jonathan, thank you for sending your your presentation to me this afternoon. <laughs> it was this morning, mate. You just disagreed. Yeah. Well, we have problems with the internet. <laughs> anyway, I've been asked to. You gave him, you, you were supposed to speak for 20 minutes and you cut it down to 15. So I've been asked to speak for 10, I am gonna speak for 15. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, look, Papua New Guinea and Australia are one of the most enduring and lasting relationships, full stop. You can't change that, because historical, we didn't ask for you to come, we didn't ask for the Portuguese to come, we didn't ask for the uh, Germans to come. We didn't ask for the British to come. We didn't ask for the Australians to come, but you all came. <laughs> and then uh, you administered us, we fought a war together. And then uh, we built a very strong relationship from that after the war. 
And so it's a relationship that Papua New Guineans depend on very strongly. But it's changed, and it's changing, and it will continue to change. But I, when I look at uh, Australian aid and the way that it's been delivered, it hurts me because two weeks ago, I had the privilege of accompanying the Minister for Defence, the two Ministers for Defence from Australia, and the two commanders of the Australian Defence Force and the Papua New Guinea Defence Force to visit our engineers, Defence Force engineers. We call them Kumul 417, working in the southeastern states and in the countryside in Victoria, helping uh, restore and rehabilitate the lives of Australians which have been devastated by the recent fires. When I saw our people working with the Australian Army, I said, this is the way Australian aid should be delivered in Papua New Guinea. Our force completely embedded to the Australian Defence Force structure, working to directions of the Australian Defence Force, working to priorities of the Australian Defence Force and working to the needs of the Australian people to help to restore the lives of those people and to bring a smile to those people who have suffered. And they even told us the stories of the magnificent and the sterling job our men and women were doing together, jointly, with the Americans, with the Fijians, and with other co true contributing nations, and with the Australians, to deliver a needed service within the expertise that they could provide. And I was surprised to hear the Minister for Defence say to me, you came and fixed the vacuum that is missing in the Australian Army, engineering battalion. So it was quite specific. That offer to assist was quite specific. And it was to assist a deficiency that the Australian government had. You know, they are, they are experts, but when it comes down to cutting bus, yeah. Papani got savvy. So they removed trees, cut down trees, cleaned out tanks, and even removed, uh, opened up schools. And I'm sure kids didn't like the schools being reopened, but Papua New Guineans opened schools for Australian kids to go back. So let's leave that story. Let, let me go back and talk about some of my experience. And Jonathan is spot on. If I had received your paper earlier, 
I would have commented on each of those things that you mentioned. But regardless, some of the things I'm going to say, I actually reflect on the concerns that you've raised here. How has aid been delivered in Papua New Guinea? 75 to the 90s, budget support. 1990s to 2000, jointly programmed and focused on priority sectors. Early 2000, increased integration and use of government of PNG businesses and systems. At this time, the Australian aid program was integrated and coordinated through government MTDP, Medium Term Development Plan. And Australian government officials would provide reports on how aid was being managed and spent in PNG. And if we had this workshop in PNG or the seminar, I'm sure a lot of departmental heads would come up and express their view. So can I suggest that we have a similar one in Papua New Guinea so that we can canvas the opinion of Papua New Guineans who are the ones who have either suffered or benefited from the aid. But in the process of looking at this aid, I've also had the opportunity to work with uh, some of the advisors who were working there. Stephen House and uh, Eric Kwa did that review. I had the pleasant pleasure of working with uh, my good friend here, Stephanie Corpus Campbell, to implement some of those findings. And that resulted in us removing a lot of advisors, uh, cutting down and prioritizing the advisors in the areas where we thought was best. And it's good that Stephen, Stephanie and I are back together again. And <clears throat> hope we can uh, review the aid program for the next uh, decade. But during that time, from uh, the EPSP, uh, the, the Economic and Public Sector Program, had programs for the national and programs for the provincial. And at all levels, national departments, provincial departments, and uh, district administrations were working together jointly to deliver programs. After that, after 2010 to 2015, sorry, after 2015, that's all changed. There's no more transparency, no more accountability. We think some serious uh, look needs to be given. And the reason is because of a lot of the decisions have been made outside of Papua New Guinea government decision-making process. Secondly, there's been a significant decrease in the use of our government businesses and systems. Thirdly, there's been a significant de decrease in the coordination of Australian government support. There was a time 
when all, was, all that was done through the Department of National Planning. And there's been an emergence of Australian funded facilities or contracting, which little explanation to Papua New Guinea on how programming priorities and decisions are made. Consequently, there's been a significant decrease in transparency, accountability of what is actually being delivered. Sometimes we have no understanding of what is working and what is not. But of course, the world is changing with increased Chinese engagement of their support to PNG, which is now providing more motivation for Australians to relook at the way they provide aid to PNG. Our, gov our governance systems remain weak, and therefore the need to continue to support leadership and governance is crucial. And also, a more commitment by leaders of our government departments and more, having a little bit more passion in the, in the work of uh, the delivery. We have come to see the Australian partnership seems to be now more focused on the political and economic partnership. We have seen the Australian High Commissioner travel around the country with ministers, with governors, identifying projects to support politicians. Should he be doing that? What I'm proposing is that we need to relook at the way we engage with the Papua New Guineans. We are equal partners, and we need more engagement. We are not recipients. Not we, no, we are not mere recipients anymore. We are equal partners, and that's what we are asking for, partnerships between the Australian government and ourselves in delivering whatever you give to us. It's not what you give, it's how it is to be delivered. So what I'm proposing as equal partners are joint agreements, consultation in the identification and preparation of programs and initiatives, joint participation, joint decision-making, joint management in the delivery of programs, joint involvement in the monitoring, review, and evaluation of programs, and being fully aware of the results and impact. Progressive management and oversight of programs by Papua New Guineans, rather than international experts or advisors. And it is therefore essential that we constantly review our bilateral and multilateral relationships, arrangements for maximum benefit of Papua New Guineans and this forum is but one example. And this partnership was recognized. The need for joint partnerships was recognized by our government in 2016. 
when it made a cabinet decision to be negotiated at the ministerial forum for joint uh, understanding, joint understanding on uh, partnership arrangements. And that is still there. I would like to pursue that with a review of the economic uh, uh, strategic uh, partnership. What do I see as the future? While I acknowledge that the environment for development assistance has changed considerably over the years, it is essential we learn from the experience of the past in order to prepare for the future. We should draw on program evaluation reports, like Jonathan said, listen to the experience of my Papua New Guinean colleagues who have been consistently involved over the many years of Australian support. This experience demonstrates that transparency and accountability in the delivery of the Australian support would be greatly improved. If there were, like I said, joint agreements, consultation in the identification and preparation of programs, joint participation, joint decision-making, joint accountability in the monitoring and reviews, and progressive management and oversight of the programs. In, in concluding, let me uh, reiterate that the Australian Papua New Guineans continue to thank, be thankful for the support that the Australians and the Australian government gives uh, to our people. But we are mostly concerned with improving services through values and the ethics leadership governance of our economic and social sectors at the time in which Australian personnel policies and delivery mechanisms are changing, we should learn from the past experiences in order to shape the future, especially in terms of the management of transparency and accountability of the Papua New Guinea-Australian partnership. Thank you. Thanks very much, Excellency. I think we all appreciate the uh, honesty, directiveness, and candor uh, of your remarks, so well taken. Um, I'd now like to turn over to Terence. Terence will be presenting the findings from his audit of Australian aid transparency. Great. Thank you, Anthea. Uh, as Anthea said, I'm going to speak to you today about the uh, audit of Australian government aid program transparency that myself and Luke Minahan conducted in late 2019. Before I go any further, I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which we stand, and I want to pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. I also want to thank all those people who provided advice to Luke and I as we conducted this audit. We were very grateful for your input. And first and foremost, I want to thank Luke Minahan, my co-author. He can't be here with us today, but he uh, undertook uh, and put a lot of work into the report uh, that I'm going to present on. Here's a brief outline of the talk that I'm going to give today. First, I'm going to explain to you why aid transparency is important. Then I'm going to tell you about how we conducted the audit of the Australian Government Aid Program's transparency. Then I'm gonna provide you with a brief summary of our findings. Then I'm gonna explain why we think we found what we found. 
And then I'm going to move on to recommendations for the Australian Government Aid Programme. First up, let me explain to you why an audit of Australian Government Aid transparent, uh, Programme transparency might be important. And I have to confess myself that usually when I hear the word audit, boredom starts to crash over me in waves. But I can assure you that when it comes to aid transparency, the circumstances are really quite different. And this is because aid transparency matters. And it matters for two reasons. The first of these is really a very simple principle. When the government spends money through the government aid program, it isn't spending its own money, it isn't spending politicians' money, rather, it's spending your money, it's spending the money of Australian taxpayers. And it seems perfectly reasonable that Australian taxpayers ought to be able to garner a relatively reasonable understanding of what the aid program is doing with their money. Transparency also matters for another reason, though. And it, this reason is directly related to international development. And this reason uh, is that the people who are most affected, either for better or for worse, by Australian aid are not Australians. Rather, they're people living in the countries that Australia gives its aid to. And they probably have a pretty good idea on whether Australian aid has been given well or been given poorly, but unfortunately, these people don't get to have a say on aid policy, at least in any direct democratic sense. They don't get to vote in elections here in Australia. They don't have direct access to Australian politicians or policymakers often either. On the other hand, there is another group of people who do get to vote in elections here in Australia and who can lobby policymakers and politicians and participate in Australia's own democratic dialogue about aid policy. And that's people like you, people here in Australia. Unfortunately, for people like you, for us, it's often quite hard, however, to get a real sense of just how well or appropriately Australian aid is being delivered. And the reason why it's hard, obviously, is because aid has been delivered in faraway places. It's not been delivered to the inner suburbs of Canberra. And so it really takes an effort on our behalf to understand how our aid has been delivered and what it's been delivered to do. And the only way it is, can be at all possible for us to have any real sense on the quality of Australian aid and whether it's been used appropriately is if the aid program is willing to be transparent about what it spends its aid on. Transparency is not a panacea. However, it is much easier, and I can tell you from experience, working from the, this side of the aid equation to have an influence if you're dealing with a transparent aid program rather than an opaque one. So that's why transparency matters, and that's why we conduct the Dev Policy Audits of Australian Government Aid Program Transparency. This is what we do. We focus on the Australian Government Aid Program, obviously. We've run three audits now in 2013, 2016, and 2019, and the methods used in the audits have been largely comparable, which enables us to see whether there have been trends over time. And what we do when we conduct our aid transparency audits is that we focus 
on the aid program's website. And the reason why we focus on the website is, of course, because in this day and age, the website is the aid program's window out into the outside world. Well, it may be, as Jonathan said, a rather murky window and a little bit hard to navigate, but that's the obvious place to go if you want information about the aid program. Now, there are many different aspects to aid transparency, but when we've looked at the website as part of the aid transparency audits, we have looked at a very specific type of transparency, and we'd argue the most important type of transparency. And what we have done is we have looked for availability of aid project documentation <laughs> online. In particular, we have looked to see whether all the, uh, we've looked at projects on the website, and we've looked to see whether those projects have available online information uh, uh, associated with project planning, information associated with project implementation documents, and also review, reviews and evaluation. And the reason why we're focused in this way, as we've conducted our transparency audits, is because these are the sorts of documents that you need to have access to if you really want to have a comprehensive picture of what the aid program is doing at any particular point, point in time. Summary information is also very useful, but if you want to understand in depth what the Australian Aid Program is doing in Papua New Guinea, for example, and how well it's going, you need access to these types of documents. Uh, because we're not superhuman, we haven't focused on all the countries that the Australian Aid Program works in. Rather, we've focused on the Pacific Country Program desks, and we've also focused on Indonesia and a random sample of countries from elsewhere in uh, the world. And we've more or less focused on the same countries across all three audits. So once again, we have comparability when it comes to our data. And for each country that we have uh, looked at, we've audited each project on the website and we've calculated the percentage of uh, projects which have documents uh, available of the sort that we're looking for. Easy enough. And uh, here's our one simple headline result for you. And this is the percentage of projects that are fully documented, 2013, 2016, 2019. Those of you who are feeling glum at this time of the, the afternoon of the second day of the conference uh, and want a negative takeaway point, well, here's one for you. 41%, 40%, 40.4. On the other hand, those of you who are rather sick and tired of hearing me stand up on the stage and complain how, the, how much the aid program's gotten worse over the years, can take some solace from the trend that you can see in front of you there. <laughs> Things don't really seem to be getting worse. So for once, <laughs> I can't tell you that the aid program is deteriorating, can I? Well, what I can tell you is it's all a little bit more complicated than the headline figures might suggest. In particular, what we can see is that planning and design documents have become a lot less readily available on the aid program's website. Similarly, performance management documents have become less readily available on the aid program's website. And the reason why the overall average hasn't fallen, however, is because there's been a really marked improvement in the availability of review and evaluation documents 
on the aid program website. I have to say, when I first saw these figures, I was somewhat perplexed. Trends usually tend to line up with each other. This is quite an uh, exception. Uh, and so, obviously, the next thing we did was try and work out why we were seeing deterioration in document availability in two areas and improvements in another area. And what we did was draw on what might be called our own qualitative understanding of the aid program and how it works, and we also conducted a considerably more quantitative analysis, which is available in the report online. And the place that we got to as we conducted this analysis was that the improved avail availability of uh, review and evaluation documents online largely stems from the efforts of the De Office of Development Effectiveness uh, assisted by the Independent Evaluation Committee. So these are two entities associated with the aid program, and over the years they've served as champions of a sort of transparency and transparency uh, in the form of publishing aid reviews and aid evaluations online. And as far as we can tell, the problem with transparency related to other documents often seems to have been that busy staff simply haven't had time to get those documents on online, or often that staff, who are these days often, no, not always aid specialists, simply don't know what they should be putting online in the name of best practice. And you can see, given this, why having an internal entity uh, or an entity like the Office of Development Effectiveness there to remind people has been particularly useful when it comes to transparency with respect to evaluations and review documents. Also, interestingly, we didn't find any obvious evidence <laughs> that transparency has become worse, or has become more worse, even worser, <laughs> help me out here, has become a, a more acute issue in programs where we might have expected it to because the countries in question have particularly sensitive geopolitical relationships with Australia. And uh, what's more, uh, if, it was a sensitivity or a culture of secrecy within the aid program that was causing transparency to decline, we'd hardly expect evaluations to be becoming more transparent, would we? After all, it's evaluations, evaluations are the types of documents where the most embarrassing information is typically contained. That's where we might find confessions of failure, the sort of thing that no one would like to see in the Australian or Daily Telegraph. And yet, evaluations have become more readily available online. So these points suggest to us that the main impediment to transparency at present isn't Australian domestic politics or a cautious aid program wanting to keep as much secret as possible. That might happen at times, but we don't think it's the main driver of the trend in declining transparency that we've seen in certain areas. Rather, we think that time and knowledge are the primary impediments to the types of transparency that we looked at in the Australian Government Aid Program transparency audits that we have conducted. 
And this is an important finding because changing a culture of secrecy or dealing with geopolitical sensitivities is challenging. Uh, changing procedural matters uh, and internal structures, on the other hand, is typically comparatively quite easy. And that brings me to my recommendations. And the most important of these recommendations is that we think the aid program should set up a small internal transparency unit, a unit that would be tasked with championing, 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 championing whatever, <laughs> the cause of transparency within the aid program. This might involve a little bit of internal advocacy, but often it would simply involve educating aid program staff about the sort of information that should be made available and also working to simplify procedures so that there aren't many procedural impediments to putting appropriate, appropriate information online. Also, in a very similar vein to one of the recommendations that Jono made, we'd also like to suggest that the aid program really ought to put a comprehensive list of all the non-trivial projects that it funds in any given year online. This is just a basic component of transparency. If we don't have that, then we can never build a full picture of what the aid program is working on. And the good news here is that the aid program already tries to do this uh, under the rubric of the International Aid Transparency Initiative. Alas, however, the information that the aid program puts online, whilst being uh, in accordance with international standards, is released as XML files. And for the ordinary Australian XML files are about as useful as a shopping list written in cuneiform. If you want to make this type of information available to people in a manner that they can use, or if the aid program wants to, it should release the information as CSV or Excel files. That wouldn't be hard, just the question of changing our document format. And then finally, although we don't study it directly in our aid transparency audits, it is worth mentioning and congratulating the aid program for another type of transparency. And this is the country level transparency that it achieves through releasing every year orange books at the time of the budget and also the um, sometimes uh, called green books, which are historical time series of information uh, on, on past spending. And this information is incredibly useful for analysts and for people on the outside trying to get a sense of what the aid program is doing. So well done, aid program, for doing that. And please, as a recommendation, keep doing that in the future. That's all I've got to say here. You want more? There are URLs. Happy to take your question and question time. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Terence, for some very practical and hopefully achievable uh, recommendations that you just put out there. Stephanie, you have a lot to comment on over the three presentations. Um, we welcome you to come up and make your comments. Good afternoon, and if I can start by recognizing the traditional custodians of this land and to pay my respect to their leaders, past, present, and emerging. And indeed, I have a lot to comment on, 
So the first thing I just want to say, I'm not here as Stephanie from the Oil Search Foundation, although I have been quite fortunate to understand how the private sector works and how it can contribute in Papua New Guinea. I'm here as someone with over 20 years working in the region and in particular on Papua New Guinea. I say I went up when my husband was posted with Defence to Townsville. He um, moved up and I didn't want to go. I just joined AusAid and so I literally picked the country closest um, to Townsville that we could catch up on long weekends. That was Papua New Guinea. I went up there sight unseen and I say I fell in love with PNG and I've been faithful ever since. Here I am 20 years later. <laughs> so it's great to be here. I'm, I'm someone who's speaking with two postings with then AusAid to, to Papua New Guinea, a posting to Fiji where I looked after Pacific regional programs, someone who has worked in the private sector, someone who's worked in NGOs, someone who's currently on a board, on boards of a number of NGOs, and someone who's actually also within the PNG government system. I'm the chair of the Southern Highlands Provincial Health Authority, which is the second largest province or so in PNG, and between that and responsibilities for Hela and Gulf Province, um, look after about 10% of governance, 10% of um, the population's health. So I come also as someone who goes to a lot of, of training sessions, et cetera, as a recipient of this aid. And I hope to just reflect on a few things that were said today from those various perspectives. So the first thing I think we all need to reflect on is that delivering development outcomes in Papua New Guinea is not easy. And if you haven't been there or worked there, let me just paint that picture for you. About a year or so ago, after the big earthquake, I went out to some very remote areas in the Basavi area. If Sally Lloyd is here, she, she's, um, there she is, Sally. Um, worked with amazing people like Sally. And we went out and, and really saw some of the challenges of these communities, including um, women who were really struggling to access supervised deliveries. And I went into one community and woman after woman was telling me that she was unable to um, get to health centre or had known someone else who had lost a, a, a child um, or had died during childbirth. I mean, the maternal mortality rate in these areas is quite high and would be higher still without people like Sally. And what the community wanted was a health centre. That's fair enough, want a health centre. Well, how do you get a health centre out to the middle of nowhere? Well, first of all, you work in partnership. You find everyone who wants to help and you work with them. And secondly, you need access to some um, helicopters because you can't just walk it in. So we literally long-lined with a helicopter um, these long containers out into the middle of very, very remote PNG by a chopper and got the aid post there. And then we worked with all the different partners, with Sally and her community and others in the lead, to try to get in then the health workers. So we got the infrastructure, you need the health workers, you need the medicines, you need the equipment to get this health service working. And I can give you a million different stories which just tell you it's really hard. And we heard from, from Alex Hawk this morning to say how hard it is in, in Australia to deliver remote health outcomes. It's hard here to deliver outcomes. And we have more capacity and um, we have more resources than in PNG. So it's just really, really hard and we can't forget that. I was also at a dinner the other day and I heard someone very senior in the Australian government, a secretary no less, um, tell me that Australia has failed to deliver services in Papua New Guinea and our aid program needs to be more accountable. It's one of our secretaries. Um, 
And I argued, no, I'm sorry, Secretary, <laughs> kind of funny being arguing this, that's not Australia's responsibility. We shouldn't be responsible for outcomes through service delivery. That's Papua New Guinea's responsibility. And we heard that from, from Jonathan, that the um, amount of Australian development assistance makes up only about 8 to 9% of PNG's budget and 3% of Papua New Guinea GDP. So therefore, it matters a heck of a lot what Papua New Guinea does with that other 91 to 92% or what it does with the 100%. It, it's not going to happen without that. But that said, and I really want to make this point, it's not an excuse for Australian aid not to be effective. It's not an excuse, because the other thing I hear all the time is, well, our aid can't really be effective because it's just too hard and it's too remote, or because it's PNG's responsibility and you know the governance isn't quite right or whatever, and so therefore we can never deliver outcomes because of this environment. And that is absolutely not an excuse, because Australian aid can be effective and should be effective if we define what we are going to do what the Australian um, taxpayer can expect from our aid program and what the, the Papua New Guineans can expect for us to deliver in very strong partnership. We should define what we're going to do and we should hold ourselves accountable for delivering and for reporting against that. And if it doesn't work, fine, but learn from it. Learn from it and do it better next time, because not everything's going to work. And in fact, if everything is working, it means we're not taking enough risk and we're not trying new things. But learn from it. And when it does work, don't cut it. <laughs> don't stop it. Keep going. So we need a, a culture and an environment where we learn and, and lessons. Now, one of the things I really want to emphasize from Jonathan and, and from my experience up there is one of the big problems at the moment with Australian Development Corporation is we are doing a little bit of everything and not much of anything. We are. I mean, you saw it up there, but let me just kind of from my list, you know, we are, we're doing health and within health, there's lots of different things. We're doing education, we're doing infrastructure, we're doing women's empowerment and protection, we're doing, you know, all sorts of governance, law and justice, climate change, agriculture, rural development. How the heck within all that, are we going to deliver outcomes? Let me put that into perspective. For about 600 million a year or so, that's the same amount that the Northern Territory, population of 250,000, spends on resourcing schools for one year. That's about the same amount that the ACT spends with about 400,000 people how much is allocated for health infrastructure. We're trying to do all of that, all of that in PNG with 600 million. It's just impossible. But not only is it not good for aid effectiveness, it actually increased the risk that there is unintended consequences from our aid program because we're not spending the time putting in the resources, putting in the people, analyzing what we need to analyzing, reviewing what we need to review, talking to the people we need to talk to, to really get what we might be doing wrong. Let me give you two examples. The first is HIV. And about uh, 18 months or so ago, um, the High Commission put out a, a Christmas card that had all of its achievements. And one of those achievements was, I think it was something like 90% of people who needed antiretrovirals for HIV were on them, hooray. 
That sounds pretty good, right? 90% who needed ARVs were on ARVs. Great job. Except the Global Fund just came out with a study last year, I believe, which said that PNG has one of, I think if it's not the first, it's the second, highest rates of drug-resistant HIV in the world. How do you get that? You go on ARVs, you go off ARVs, you go on ARVs, you go off ARVs. So at the end of the day, it's not Australia's fault that PNG has the highest, one of the highest rates of drug-resistant HIV in the world. It's not its fault. But if we had the time, perhaps, to spend analysing, researching, understanding unintended consequences, funding certain NGOs to supply these, and then all of a sudden cutting that overnight. If we thought that through and understood those unintended consequences, maybe what we are doing might not be contributing to that outcome. Let me give you another example. And that's kind of thinking about some of these unintended consequences um, and risk inherent in funding infrastructure. So I'll never forget as a young Aussie officer, before ministerial visit, racing out along the roads to remove those signs that said funded by Australian government on roads that were full of potholes. <laughs> and on the health, I kid you not, on the health centres that were dilapidated, quickly ripping them down before the minister came. Um, I'm, I'm sure such efforts at ministerial perception management have long ceased in the modern Australian <laughs> public service. But um, any, anyway, that was my job. Um, but kind of fast forward to today, and as chair of Southern Highlands Provincial Health Authority, I'm currently worried about donors coming in and building new health centres that are not aligned to our health strategic plan. And when this happens, we can't adequately supply these health workers with medicine or equipment. We don't have the maintenance budget to fix water tanks or collapsed roofs. In some cases, um, and the Commissioner alluded to this, these centres are being built following high-level donor discussions at the national level when we haven't even been in involved in the conversation, yet we have to implement this. And what happens is then the donor races in, based on this deal in, in Moresby, or following a visit, and they build a health centre that's outside of our plan and outside of our capacity. And then everyone else says, but they got a new one, and then you're coming in, health authority and you're just trying to then patch up ours. We don't want you to patch it up, we want a new one too. And it creates all sorts of problems and headaches, I can tell you. But at the end of the day, and we know we need to make health work, right? And PNG, right now we've got things like the coronavirus on our, on our doorstep, multi-drug resistant TB, multi-drug resistant HIV. It's a good thing for our own national security if health systems work. For a health system to work, I need a few things. I need the infrastructure, yes. I need the health workers, I need the medicine, I need the equipment, and I need the governance, and I need someone who's planning this, who understands what happens for funds that flow from the very top to the very bottom. And when donors only come in and work on one bit, we're going to build infrastructure, we're not going to worry about how the funds flow, or they come in and they say we're only going to train the midwives, we're not going to worry that they don't have any equipment or they're not trained you know, for the next 20 years, I can't deliver a health outcome, can't do it. So again, when we invest in the ag program, when we invest in outcomes, we need people who have the time and the expertise to understand the system, to understand the players, to talk to the recipients and make sure that they're involved in the decision making. And we need to build those relationships 
not over one year, not over two years, not over years. I've been working out there for 20 years, and I'm just now starting to get things done because I know I'm working people like John Collier, who I've built a relationship with over the last 15 years. Right? So it takes time to invest in people, to invest in relationships, and you can't be there for doing a little bit of everything and not much of anything. Two more quick points. One, partnership, 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 partnership. It's the only way to do it. It's the only way to do it. And by partners, we have to work with the government and we have to work through their systems. We have to, we have to work through the systems and we have to work under energy policy, a perfectly good medium-term development strategy which says these are the priorities and I have to stop. But, but partnership, private sector is also a really critical part of that as our NGOs. Strategy, there's no strategy for your $600 million a year. There is no strategy. There's no strategy to say, how is Australia going to do this? And importantly, how is I as a partner, and I'll put my also time on spending $100 million dollars of the five years of our money, how am I going to fit in and leverage of what Australia is doing as the largest donor to have an outcome? You need a strategy, no strategy. And the last point I'll make is, and we heard it before, I'm just going to say it again, another really, really, really important partner is the Australian taxpayer. I'm a taxpayer. I care about what happens. But all those other taxpayers who might be arguing that I'm scared of the bushfires, so therefore, prevent them, let's put more money into Australia and we need to cut it out of the aid program. Or I'm scared of coronavirus, so let's put more money into our border security and cut it out of the aid program. If maybe they understood that viruses come across borders, countries like Papua New Guinea have the third largest natural rainforest in the world. If that's chopped down, it's going to matter in Australia in terms of protecting our own, um, our own forest. So therefore, what matters in places like PNG absolutely matter here. And the more Australians understand that, the more that we can go out and deliver effective action. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I really felt the passion and the commitment in, in your voice and in everything you, you said, and the uh, examples and the comparisons you gave were incredibly insightful. I'd like to invite the panel. We Everyone went over time, but I think it was worth it. Um, the contributions were amazing. So um, I'd like to invite the panel to come up and sit. And we, because we are very strict on time in this conference, which includes timing for our drinks, we have to end at five. So I'm going to take about four questions from the audience. We have four panelists. We'll take four questions. If we have time for more, um, I'll take those as well. So can people just uh, raise their hands and I'll go across the room. Is there anyone over here who has a question? Good afternoon. My question goes um, to any one of you. Why haven't you asked the, uh, the big questions? Why do we have consistently have poor development outcomes? in spite of the billions of dollars put into PNG over the last 40, 50 years. Their, the evidence in Africa and Asia is remarkably different. The link between governance and development and service delivery and the people who operate between the nexus between politics and government and public servants. Why, what have we done wrong in this country? 
why don't we get results? Great. I just had a quick question about infrastructure uh, and Australia's role in uh, providing or contributing to the work that's taking place uh, by the PNG government in terms of infrastructure. Um, this is not something Australia has a long history with. Uh, it's something that PNG needs. Uh, to what extent should Australia be reorientating its aid program around sort of country priorities? Uh, even if it's not in its strengths of being able to deliver. Uh, let me firstly thank uh, the organisers for this important event and uh, I'd like to uh, thank the uh, very nice, uh, excellent presentations this afternoon. Uh, uh, with respect, um, uh, there, was, there were a lot of very important uh, points being raised. Uh, I think it's timely in terms of Australian aid and going forward. But I'd like to emphasise what uh, um, uh, Mr. Campbell said with respect to doing too many things. I think PNG government, prime ministers and ministers have talked about and uh, for many times that Australian aid program must have impact on the ground. And one way uh, was that uh, the infrastructure development, we, they, they emphasised that 50% must go to infrastructure development. And so uh, in terms of uh, uh, the aid program is so huge uh, it can do a lot, 600 million. Just imagine how many hospitals we can build with that. Even our highways we can build with that. It's a lot of money for Papua New Guinea. And we need to put into that infrastructure to achieve maximum impact. And that would be very, very important. And Papua New Guineans want large impact projects on the ground, and I'd like to emphasize that. Um, and secondly, I think uh, what Papua New Guineans want I think money is very important in terms of the health, education and infrastructure. But I think the, 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 the projects that, an impossible project that happened in the Bosavi area that Sally is undertaking, delivering that hospital in a very difficult place, I think that is commendable. And that is love. We need Australians to show love. That is very important. With money, Australians must come with that love. And with love, we can find answers to all the difficult problems we are facing. And uh, that is something that I want to see. Passion, love, love for my country, and love for the people we can deliver. Thank you. You've told us many ways in which aid should be better used, but aid in per capita terms is really very small. Uh, do you think that aid should, that we should be aiming to get aid to Papua New Guinea increased. I know that's, we're, we're, with, we're coping with a government that said it won't increase aid at all, but, but uh, so it sounds like a political impossibility, but Labor's in the process of preparing its policies. And if the responsible thing is to aim for more aid, it would be very helpful if you would say so. Thanks. Um, very direct questions as well. So the first question, what have we done wrong? That's a big one. Who would like to start? Excellency. You've got a mic, I think. Oh. Yeah. When you asked that question, my heart was beating. <laughs> yeah, because I, I was starting to think, uh, what I, we should also think about what have we done right uh, to, to come this far. I think we, we should be looking at positive things 
that our country has done, highly diversified country, many different languages, but it took courage and passion to bring them together. So we should thank our pioneer leaders like Somare, uh, the Morautas, the Namalius, uh, you know, who were in chance, and the Winties, you know, who laid down and dedicated their lives to bringing uh, that together. And I think because there was strong leadership, uh, strong leadership on the part of those people, uh, but also uh, leaders who were able to capture the imagination of our, of our people and concentrate on the development needs uh, rather than, uh, you know, uh, worrying about uh, you know, the political, uh, their political livelihood. But then, of course, you know, the motions of no confidence made a lot of difference too. Changes in government over time, political instability led to, you know, public service instability too. Uh, so the period, uh, you know, between 1975 to 1982, I think was a very critical period in the history of our country where you know, there were regular changes. But uh, the reforms which took place in, uh, in, in 2000, uh, 1999, to introduce the integrity of political parties, I think has brought about political stability and consequently uh, brought about stability in the public service too and restored the confidence of the people in the public service. But there's also a great deal of corruption uh, that has you know, crept into, uh, into the public service and also in the private sector as well. Uh, and I think uh, recently, I think yesterday, a law was introduced to introduce ICAC. I think that's a positive measure. Uh, so I'd, I'd like to encourage those of us here to look at the positive things uh, and learn from uh, the mistakes we've made in the past, like Stephanie said, and see if we can uh, move forward in addressing uh, uh, you know, the future of our country. In terms of aid, aid infrastructure, uh, my Deputy High Commissioner is very passionate about infrastructure development in, in Papua New Guinea. Uh, infrastructure is okay as long as you, know, you maintain uh, the aid infrastructure. So we're not talking about just roads, and bridges, we're talking about uh, classrooms for schools, health centers for schools, uh, air, airports. Uh, but comes, that comes with uh, developing the capacity and the capability of, of Papua New Guineans to be able to build uh, that infrastructure. <coughs> Electrification. So yes, uh, shifting the emphasis to infrastructure is good, but you know, we, we need to look at how we're going to manage uh, that in the future. Let, let me look at the, the in, increase in the aid. In recent times, the Papua New Guinea government has been asking for a decrease in aid uh, and shift towards economic cooperation and an emphasis uh, on uh, uh, trade. And, and I think uh, the Papua New Guinea government wishes to be seen as equal partners. Uh, and uh, see if we can uh, reverse uh, the 17 billion kina that the Australians are investing in Papua New Guinea. We want to reverse that. We want to get more Papua New Guinean investments uh, outside of PNG, but also encourage investments in our country.
so increasing the aid, but you know, if we're going to uh, increase the aid, we need to look at uh, how we're going to manage that effectively. Thank you. Stephanie. Thanks. Um, so I might just start with that last point and agree that I don't, I mean, I'm always for more money in the system, but really unless you get the house in order right, you shouldn't build any further. So I think focusing on this aid effective agenda, having a strong strategy in place, ensuring that that's prioritised, ensuring you have good partnership models, ensuring you're working with other sectors and they're all doing their bit, you know, including the private sector and their shared value propositions, etc. So until you get that framework in place, it may not be appropriate then to spend more money. And I think just reflecting back in the days that we had AusAid and we were scaling up really, really quickly, one of the key lessons learned is that if you scale up too quickly, without ensuring you have the right people and the right systems and the right designs. Again, you can have some of those unintended consequences. So I, I think the effectiveness gender first, and then let's start arguing for more funding would be my argument. Can I also just reflect on the love question? Because um, I am someone, as you can probably tell, very passionate about Bob in the beginning, and I, I say to all of um, those who want to work on my team, I have about 70 people on my team, and I say that there's two common criteria to come and work for us. One, you have to love Papua New Guinea, and second, you have to be passionate about making a difference. And if you tick both of those boxes, then we'll talk about the rest of the job selection criteria. And I do think that that has been a competitive advantage. Like, we do work over time, we do think about results, we, we do hold ourselves accountable for those results because we genuinely want to make a difference. And I know, you know, people like, like Sally, you'll, you'll see the same, and others working in the country. You know, Steve and Jonathan, I think we all share this incredible passion and love for Papua New Guinea. It, it is an incredible place. You, I, I warn people, you come to PNG and many people tell you, beware of the rascals, beware of the mosquitoes, beware of the potholes, beware of blah, blah, blah. But no one tells you, beware of this bug that will bite you called Papua New Guinea and it'll yeah. be in your blood for the rest of your life. It never lets you go. You, a lot of you will understand that, hey? Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure I completely agree with the point that Australia's not doesn't have the skills in the infrastructure sector, depending on where in infrastructure that we work. But we certainly have, over you know the many years I've been involved in the program, had a fairly significant, at least you know, transport infrastructure. Some of these other areas. But again, I think our, I, I don't think we should ever be venturing into things that we have no skills and capacity to deliver effectively. And we need to ensure, you know, in this kind of agenda, what do we do and what do we not do? We need to focus on what we do in terms of, A, what's in Australia's national interest and how's that prioritised? How does that meet PNG's national interest and where does that coincide? And then what are we as Australians good at delivering? And that doesn't mean that other things aren't important. It just means maybe someone else wants to step in and do it. So you have you know, the US scaling up, you have the banks, you have others. So it's how do you divide that in terms of ensuring that PNG has the support that it needs, but that we're focusing on those core areas that, that we find effective. And I would add infrastructure to that agenda because I, I think it is a critically important sector. And, and I do think that Australia um, would have the capacity in, in um, many ways to deliver that. But that's my opinion. It'll be interesting to hear from Jonathan. Um, and just very quickly in terms of results, again, as I said before, there's quite a few, you know, reasons why results um, are not as 
as positive as we would all hope for Papua New Guinea. One is it's, I said, just a very difficult place. There's over a million people living in extremely remote areas. There's capacity challenges. There's some of the challenges that the High Commissioner noted on governance. But at the same time, you know, PNG is a, a relatively new nation um, and it is moving forward pretty quickly and let's not forget progress. And one of the areas I do think that the aid program should give itself a pat on the back but should continue to focus on is civil society. When I first started in Papua New Guinea and particularly working in the area of violence against women, it was very hard to engage with civil society on this, very hard. Um, now it, it's blossoming. I mean, there's a lot of really um, growing and impressive civil society organisations that are doing some amazing things. And a lot of that's because the aid, our development cooperation program has helped to create that environment. And that's laying the ground in many areas, not just that violence space, and other areas where combined with things like um, digital technology, PNG may well start to leap forward and again we need to make sure we're in the space of understanding innovation understanding where the future is going and not reinventing the past but thinking about how we we change the future I think I've got one here thanks Steph um, increase aid well yeah I mean I've spent the last 10 years of my life doing as much public advocacy as possible on advocating for increased aid program uh, much of that with Stephen I mean if you google by Lowy Institute, I mean, and me, I mean, I've done hundreds, written hundreds of articles, hundreds of interviews advocating for an increased aid program. Uh, it, I'm personally dismayed at the state of the overall volume. Uh, you know, we say we're a generous country. The minister said we're generous people. Well, the numbers say we're not. Not at all. Not even close. You know, we're stingy. Uh, and it's really disappointing. And yeah, and it's an emotive topic. Um, but I'll continue to advocate for it. Should we increase aid to PNG? Well, I think first and foremost, we should restore the cuts that we've made everywhere else. PNG was ring fenced, Pacific was ring fenced. Um, and so, yeah, restore other areas first before you consider um, increasing aid to PNG. But the, I mean, the challenges in PNG certainly justify more aid. And, you know, the point I made about aid concentration from Australia, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Where is everyone else? Um, uh, on infrastructure, well, yeah, we have typically left building stuff to World Bank and ADB, uh, but now we want more impact and visibility of our aid investments because of uh, China. Uh, but yeah, as Seth said, we have done a lot of infrastructure actually, maintenance, a lot of road maintenance. Uh, you know, we've built facilities at UPNG recently. We don't actually, the DFAT doesn't build anything, you know, they just outsource it. So, and all of the major contracting companies uh, do, most of them that do development work, uh, they moonlight development, their bread and butter is engineering. You know, so, you know, I, I think it's very possible for us to do, uh, do infrastructure. Um, and I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll just leave the, the other ones, but. Terrence. Very short, simple answer to the question of whether Australia should give more aid to Papua New Guinea. Um, I'm fine with that. The need is uh, real in Papua New Guinea. However, in the first instance, I'd say spend that money on building expertise within the aid program, uh, employing enough staff so that they had time to do their jobs properly, and employing enough staff so they could foster their own relationships with people in Papua New Guinea. On top of that, spend the money on real monitoring <coughs> and evaluation. So in short, make the aid program in Papua New Guinea one that hinges, is focused on learning and focused on building relationships. That would be money very well spent, in my opinion. Ditto. <laughs> I uh, can I just say, our, our government is also demanding that in terms of contracting, there should be a lot more Papua New Guinea uh, engagement. 
And if you're going to contract, if you're going to contract it to Papua New Guineans, are they going to be competitive and highly qualified Papua New Guinean companies and have an open, transparent procurement process where we equally beat? Uh, that's not the case. I'm afraid we have to stop with, with the questions, but I would really love to thank the panel. It was a, an outstanding session. Um, definitely full, I think, of all the sessions I've attended over the past two days, this one was so full of emotion, but also frustration, determination, a sense of urgency, and really a sense of deep love, and, deep love um, and uh, passion about Papua New Guinea. There wasn't an ounce of complacency uh, amongst the panel or in the room, and I think that, if anything, delivers us a positive outcome from the session and hopefully the way forward. Uh, finally, I have to thank this panel. It was amazing. I learned so much. Um, I'm so glad you asked me to chair. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University. To find out more about Dev Policy and our work on Australian aid, PNG in the Pacific and global development policy, visit our website devpolicy.anu.edu.au or check out our blog at devpolicy.org where you can subscribe to our daily posts, various newsletters and this podcast. You can also connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.